Yes. So as I said earlier, we're looking today, we're looking at Luke 19 verses 41 to 45. So we're looking at Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and then cleansing the temple, kicking out all the uh, moneylenders, etc. The discussion questions are, number one, what are some objects, places, buildings, things, etc. that are used outside of their intended purpose? Um, yeah. Can you guys think of any examples of that? You know, when like you see those like hacks videos online, there's like life hacks and stuff and they use like random things for like how to cut an orange or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, got you. OK, so we're going to move on to the second question now, which is when you're listening to someone speak, when there's a speaker. What is it about certain speakers that make you sit up and listen? What is it about certain speakers that engage you more than others? I think when they talk about like their personal experience, because then it can be easier to like relate to that if you've been through that or it's something that's actually happened to them. And so you can sort of understand it better. I was going to say they've got to be like passionate about it. They can't just standing there like talking because otherwise I'm gonna be like do you want to be here or <laughs> are we just listening you have to believe that they believe in what they're saying I guess some some of them know how to take the the perfect words to explain something really well and captivate you I usually quite like listening to someone if like they're funny if they can add comedy to what they're talking about I think uh, a good use of imagery and using metaphors to kind of explain things for me personally is a great way of, of making me listen. So, I think the message is quite important as well, having a bold message. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, that was some yeah, really, really great responses there. And that's what we're going to kind of be unpacking. Josh is going to look at that a little bit as we kind of delve into seeing Jesus when he goes into Jerusalem. So he's just ridden in to Jerusalem on a donkey in the previous passage and then he goes straight to the temple and he starts teaching there and we see all throughout that Jesus teaches a lot and we can see actually like the ways that you guys have mentioned that actually you know Jesus Jesus used you know he spoke through parables he used metaphors and imagery to convey the amazing truths that he needed to convey in a way that we can understand he was passionate charismatic and he was like unbelievably wise. We can see that from back in Luke 2, when he sat as a small boy, maybe 12 or 13, talking with these Pharisees and teachers of the law in a temple, asking them questions and just, yeah, and just really unpacking. And it says in one of the verses in Luke 2 that they were all amazed at his wisdom. And that's something that continues all throughout the Gospels. When Jesus speaks, people listen to him. When Jesus is teaching, people listen to him teach and that's why it's so essential that we kind of get passage here in these eight nine verses but before we get into that i'm just going to talk a little bit about the temple so the temple in jerusalem would have been a huge huge place it would have been almost like the pivotal center of jerusalem like you had these kind of several key buildings in Jerusalem in the first century. You had the palace of Herod the Great, the palace of the high priest, but they all paled in the comparison to the size of the temple because the temple was kind of split into several regions. 
um, you had the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go. And then you'd move out and you'd be there. There'd be this bigger building, then an internal courtyard, then an outer courtyard. And the purpose of this outer courtyard was that it was a place of worship that Gentiles were allowed into. It was a place where all people were permitted to go and to worship God. It wasn't a kind of Jews only place in this outer courtyard. But we can see that the reasoning for Jesus getting um, righteously angry in this passage is because the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they'd taken this outer courtyard, a place of worship for the Gentiles, and they basically turned it into a trading center. The way that it worked is obviously you had the Roman, the Roman currency, which um, Jerusalem was under Roman rule. And the Roman currency was what was used as tender in shops, businesses, etc., in the remainder of the city. But in the temple, you had to use a specific type of currency. You had to use the Tyrian shekel. We can actually see, you know, all throughout the Old Testament, if the minor prophets, especially looking at Micah, Micah writes to Judah and He's very clear about the fact that Judah have been manipulating money, that Judah have been dishonestly trading, that they've been using scales that are weighted in their favor. And this continues all the way through here. We can see that it's likely that the money changes exchange rates would have been extortionately high. People wanting to worship at the temple would have had to pay an excessive price just to buy sacrifices yeah, in order to worship. And this is a kind of a barrier that was put in place. And Jesus was like, no, look, you know, my house should be a place of worship, not a den of robbers. And that's what Josh is going to unpack. But that's going to be all from me um, now. And I'm going to hand straight over to Josh. Can somebody read the passage for me? It is Luke 19, 41 to 48. Um, I can read it if you want. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Jesus at the temple. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Yeah, thank you, Lottie. I've kind of split this into two key areas, as you can see that there is a big gap in between where it says the whole change of the subject. I'm going to focus on this first section of 41 to 44 as kind of one body and then the other as the other. And so much importance for this passage, I feel, is held in two simple words in the first passage, in just the fact that he wept. See, we see throughout the Bible, throughout the Gospels, we see three places where Jesus cries. Throughout his time on earth, we, he probably cried more times, but it's only written about three times. All of them coming towards the latter stages of his three and a half years of ministry. There's all three of these coming close to his crucifixion. See, of course, we have here Luke 19, 41 to 42, where Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem uh, as he approaches it. Then we move on and we've got in John uh, 11 to 35, we see Jesus weeping before he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is the whole story of how Lazarus 
is dead and then he is at the tomb and then he's like Lazarus come out and Lazarus comes out and then finally I'm going to go all the way to Hebrews here it says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was been able to save him from death this points to when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane when he is praying to God with the disciples falling asleep elsewhere when he actively is crying out to God if it is possible may you take this cup from me yet not as I will but as you will in this situation he's basically asking if there's another way that doesn't involve my death that would be pretty nice but only if it's your plan but yeah it would be pretty nice but each time that Jesus weeps is because of the kinder morbid topic of death Lazarus has died Jesus was about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and then we come to this passage this passage seems to be the outlier because it's more than a week before him being in Jerusalem and to be given over to the court. See, he knows what his death means, even now, even all the way at the start, before it all, he sees what it is. He knows what it means for people that don't accept it in life. See, in 42, it says, if even you had only known on this day what would have brought you peace. God's promise of eternal life is still a choice for us. It's not a promise that no matter what life you lead, you're going to go to heaven. There's that part of it that is, if you accept Jesus died on the cross for our sins, which I'm going to split out onto a bit of a kind of thing that I wasn't, haven't planned down in my notes. But it goes to Romans 5 verse 8 that we're going to talk about later, which says while we were still dead in our sins, Jesus Christ died for us. Jesus died for us when we were dead in our sins. That doesn't mean that if we live without focusing on the fact that Jesus has died for us, we are still dead in our sins. And we're always going to be dead in our sins. But with the, but the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice that has been built up all the way since Genesis 3.15, all the way from there, it says something about the serpent's head and it will be crushed. And that is Jesus rising from the grave. As Jesus conquering the death, conquering the divide so that we can turn back to God, so that we can have our sins forgiven. Because that's the whole point of these Gospels. It's all leading to this pivotal moment on Calvary. That's what we see in the Great Commission. Jesus tells us to go out and fish for men. God's promise of eternal life is a choice, as we've said. It wasn't seen then, which is seen by if, if you had seen on this day, what would have brought you peace and it's still not globally seen now when we talk about the great commission we are talking about what jesus said to go out and fish for men there's a reason behind all of this because jesus knows that we're going to have to meet people where they are he knows that we're going to have to go out and love them he knows that we're going to have to go out and try to show them his love because not everybody's going to experience it not everybody's going to find it in the ways that we might have at the moment we are a very small minority of young people today because young people today being Christian isn't isn't cool. It goes back to the Governor B book that I love reading. It talks about, you know what? Our faith isn't what we look out and we see. Oh, yeah, everybody really wants to be a Christian. It's hard being who we are. It's never going to be easy. But if God had made it easy, then it wouldn't be what it is. See. When we don't believe we're making a difference when we talk to people, this passage here should be one of the things that sticks out to us. When we go back to it, 
we see that Jesus' pain and weeping here is for those that won't find him in life. See, this is what we see in verse 44 of the New King James Version. Because you did not know of the time of your visitation. All this pain, all this death, all this commission is because Jesus wasn't recognised for who he was. Not by everybody. And that's why we see there's so much argument in the world today about all these different things is because we we missed out on when Jesus actually came to visit us. God knew that people weren't going to see him for who he was. And that's the amazing and that's the amazing thing that Jesus's death gives us promise for. It's the fact that our sins are taken on, on the cross. Even though people didn't recognize him, Jesus still died for our sins. And I will come back to talking about a topic kind of similar to this. So now I'm going to hop all the way back to verse 41 again. And two different Greek words are used for wept in both Luke and John. John being when he's with Lazarus and Luke being here weeping over Jerusalem. See, in here in Luke, the Greek word for wept is klio, which means to wail aloud. While the Greek word used in John is dakruo. When I was reading this, I was kind of thinking, They've used a different word. You see that loads of times in the Bible. But it actually kind of stood out to me that this was in John in Lazarus. He was deeply saddened with the loss of his friend, still knowing he'd be saved, still knowing that he would call his name and Lazarus would walk out of that tomb. But here in Luke, Jesus is wailing because he knows not everybody's going to accept him. Not everybody had accepted him. He saw that people hadn't seen the promise that he brought he hadn't seen who he was the truth behind it for where he cried for one in john he cried for billions upon trillions upon all eternity until he comes again every single life he is weeping for here here as he looks over the city over the thousands of people that live in jerusalem over the millions of people that would follow, the billions of lives that come in the next 2,000 years and forever after. Those tears signify the magnitude of our calling of the commission. Because every single conversation matters. You might not realise it, but you you might plant a seed if you're just there chatting with your friend about football, or you could be just sat there chatting with your friend about anything. You could just plant a seed there and then. And that seed over time will grow. And we pray into that. We pray for the salty conversations, as Ben always likes to say. And that is the magnitude of our calling. Of course, we're not going to be there 100% of the time because we're not Jesus, who was 100% man, 100% God, 100% of the time. That bad maths is always gone back to. So every single day we take that step, every single time We just have that conversation with our friend. We are planting the seed. We are living out that commission that we see the importance of here in this passage. Now to move on to Jesus at the temple. So I am going to talk about something that we've all been struggling with at the moment. Motivation. I mean, I don't know about you, but I wake up in the morning and I'm like half an hour later, I'm still in bed. An hour later, might even still be in bed gets to midday and I'm like, oh, I've got a lesson in 10 minutes. Time to get out of bed. See, 
How many times have you woken up for a golf your morning and then procrastinated so hard that it gets to midday and you've done nothing? You know, there's one person that has never done this and it's probably Jesus. It's most definitely him. Because here Jesus enters the temple courts and rather than just having a look around, having a wonder, having a little, hi God, I am now in your, your house. See, he immediately, immediately, as soon as he enters, first thing he does he dries out the people who were selling. See, the temple courts had been turned into a place where people were literally selling the animals for sacrifices. People would arrive at the temple and then be ambushed with people trying to sell them, sell them these animals at ridiculously high prices, saying, you need to make your sacrifice. Here, take my lamb. See, imagine if in modern day we went to church and there were like 50 people around the the entrance just trying to sell you a bible for a hundred pounds it's like is there's levels to this game and jesus wasn't having any of this the first thing he does when he arrives is he drives out the injustice straight away he's getting to what he's doing and it's not just teaching but it's driving out evil and that's what we see him do so many times jesus didn't shrink from the big situations be it feeding 5,000 people, be it, be it hailing people from leprosy. He never shrinks away. He drove out evil, pure and simple. That's what we see him do so many times. Taking evil spirits out of people, driving out spirits in the name of God. See, he has gone from, I think, biblical manuscripts say that it's about a day between 41 and 45 in this passage. In a day, he has gone from weeping over the city to just getting straight on with God's plan. Because above all else, Jesus cared. And it's what drives the whole motivation through what we see here, all the way to the hill at Calvary. And as we see this in Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and so that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus cared. Jesus, above all else, he cared for the sanctity of his presence. In these times, the temple had a 60 feet, about 20 metres, about 20 metre high curtain. It's like, it's a massive curtain that separated a room in which only the main rabbi could enter once a year to make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. This room was the one room where it was considered that God's presence would be. So you can imagine Jesus' discomfort, seeing the area that just surrounds it, being used as a market to rip people off who were coming to be near him. See, rather than using it a place of worship, they were trying to make a profit off of God's name. Right, now just imagine the curtain. 20 metres high, four inches thick, about the thickness of your forearm, it was probably impossible for not even an average human. Like Eddie Hall, world's strongest man from 2018, I doubt he could probably rip it in half completely. The same curtain, when Jesus dies on the cross, all 20 metres of it, top to bottom, rips completely in two, releasing God's presence out into the world. Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus knew what was going to happen, so he wanted to prepare them for it. And Jesus cared 
that when they intended to meet with him, they did. Jesus cared that his place was for God's glory. That's why this is so prominent. The teachers hated him as that he stopped them making a profit off of God, basically. Jesus taught every day, even when he was this close to his death. If you, if you or I knew it, I'd probably take a day where I was like, right, I'm just going to sit in front of Netflix for about five hours, eat some fish food, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Right now I'm hungry, I've said that. But like, just, I would want to spend time being like, you know what, I'm just going to wallow in this fact. See, even when he was so close to death, he chose to teach. Staring down death every single day, he continued to chase after God's plan. That's what it says in Hebrews. For the joy set before him, this is what we see, this is why he was loved by so many. Because he taught in everything he did. He spoke in parables because it made it easier for people to understand. But the amount of content we've got from three and a half years of ministry is crazy. And that's what we see. And this, that's what we see the impact of him after in Acts. The book that we're still living out. All the letters that Paul writes are because of the impact that Jesus had. He cared about using his time on earth effectively. He didn't want to have a single minute, a single hour spent not trying to live out God's plan. Because the bad math that we always go back to, he was 100% man. He was 100% God. And that was 100% of the time. He lives out everything in the calling we're talking about. That great commission, he perfectly lived it out. He was the perfect embodiment of it. See, you've got the characteristics of his humility, and it's the combination of all of these, his honesty, his love, his compassion that we see in uh, Matthew 9, 36. When he saw that the, cr the crowds, he had compassion on them. He was a servant. Uh, Mark 10, 45, Jesus even tells everyone, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then we come to most important one of the one that affects us. Forgiveness. Luke 23, 34, as Jesus is dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Galatians 5, 22 to 23, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which is kind of like forgiving, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things there were there is no law jesus had all of the fruits of the spirit he probably had every single spiritual gifting that we can ever think about see and this is what makes the sacrifice so prominent we see here they couldn't find a way to kill him because he all people hung on his words different translations say he was loved by everybody and he was still sacrificed rather than barabbas which we come to in chapter 23. A rightful prisoner, a murderer. He, will, he probably deserves death row in, by their laws. He deserved the crucifixion. But because on the holy day, rules of the Jews meant that they could save one person, Pilate was like, right, here we go. Son of God, mass murderer. You're probably going to want to save a son of God. But then this is what we get to with the the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people, they were shouting, we want Barabbas. They influenced the group that were there at the temple to get Pilate to give them Barabbas. 
this murderer. Surely they would have chosen the son of God. But no, we don't see Barabbas in the chapter 23 at any point, And we don't hear from him again. We don't see him turn around to Jesus and say he owes him everything. He doesn't bow down to Jesus. Jesus knew, though, he knew he had to be treated like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Did the people set Barabbas free? No. One thing set Barabbas free in that moment, and it was God's love. Who is Barabbas? Barabbas, a sinner, saved by God's grace. I'm guessing that's ringing a few bells. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, and by works so no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do God's work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Titus 3, verse 5, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Romans 3, 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God loves Barabbas. Barabbas, a murderer. Barabbas, a sinner. He wanted Barabbas to go free. Even if Barabbas doesn't acknowledge that gift, God loves him. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Barabbas is me. Barabbas is you. We are all Barabbas in this situation. We are all standing there in our chains while we see the son of God sacrificed for what we've done. We're still stuck in our chains. Are we shaking ourselves free? Are we taking that key and unlocking them for ourselves. I'm not saved by grace. I can do this all myself, which is stupid to think because we can't, because that's not what we can do. We do not teach a works gospel. We do not teach the fact that, you know what, if you're in this life, do this, 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 then you will be saved. It all comes down to God's grace that we see in this sacrifice. When we try to find our own answer, we fail. That's not the gospel. There's one answer, and it's the one who was sentenced to death on a cross while we were let go. Think how many times have you had that conversation in your head of you being Barabbas, saying, we deserve this. I deserve all this. I am a sinner. I have shame. I have guilt. I have condemnation. Put it all on me. I deserve this. I did this. And then Jesus turns and looks at you and says, give me your shame. Give me your sin. Give it all to me. That's all we have. That's the magnitude of this. See, it's in God alone. Our greatest challenge is in believing the gospel. Every moment, every sin, every mistake we make, we are watching Jesus walk to the cross, carrying our cross. We stand free while Jesus is humiliated, crown of thorns put on his head flanked by two known criminals, flogged by the Roman guards, laughed at through the streets. Jesus is humiliated and taking the pain. It will always be Jesus. He is enough, he is enough for that. He lived that perfect life so he could die the perfect death. And no point can we take our own, take our own sin. See, I've been doing Bible in a year 
and I came to last night and this has only just come back to me. And I think it's in chapter 19. No, it's not. It is in chapter, it's somewhere where a mother asks for her sons to be sat at the left and right hand side of Jesus. And Jesus says, can you drink from my cup? In time, we will all drink from Jesus's cup, but we cannot choose when we do that. We cannot make that choice to be like, you know what? I'm going to sit at the right hand side of God because God has pre-planned that. In every moment, we can't take our own sins on the cross like Jesus can. That's why we can't drink from the cup before Jesus has, before Jesus tells it, tells us it's our turn. We can't take our own sin because Jesus was perfect and we are not. Jesus lived that perfect life to die of that perfect death. This is displayed as the same people who asked for Barabbas were loving him. Jesus loved Barabbas. Even if Barabbas would never love Jesus, Jesus loved Barabbas. The whole, if Jesus was fully human in that moment, he would have been screaming out, why me? Why? Why me over this murderer? But because Jesus was that 100% God, 100% human and 100% God working together 100% at the time, he was like, this is God's plan. May it work out. At the temple courts, while he was teaching these people, he knew what was coming. He knew the same people that were hung on every word would later give him over to death. He didn't waste a moment. He had that motivation that drove him all the way to the cross. That is the beauty that is in the gospel. The beauty that is in forgiveness. The beauty that is in that moment on the cross as he died when the wrath of God was satisfied. That is the beauty in the fact that three days later, the tomb was empty. That is the beauty that every single time we read this book, we read the same story, yet it's still changing lives. The fact that he rose from the grave, the fact that he ascended to heaven, the fact that he left the Holy Spirit on earth is why he's still changing lives. The fact that he was given over, the fact that Barabbas went free. It's what we see in Hebrews 12, verse 2, which is what was titled the evening. With a joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God, scorning its shame, taking its condemnation, taking our sin. On that cross, as he breathed his last breath, he yelled, it is finished. Thunder clapped and the curtain ripped completely down the middle and God went out into the world. And that's what we see. These people that were loving him sent him to death. The same people that were sat hanging on his every word in verse 48 were there when the curtain was ripped. Jesus cried because he saw this all out. Yet he had the motivation to carry on when everything was probably pulling him the other way. If it was me, I would have probably ran far away. I would have done a Jonah and crossed a whole sea to try and escape it. But Jesus stared death in the face, took our sins on the cross, died so that we can have a life in him. Which is, yeah, most pretty much what I wanted to say tonight. Jesus is always going to be enough. We're not going to be, but he is.
and that is yeah thank you for coming to my ted talk once again um and passing back over to ben yeah amazing stuff josh thank you so much for that something that you said there i'm just going to pick up on and that's the fact that jesus will always be enough that jesus has done enough to always be enough you see, so often I would imagine that the majority of you have come across this assumption that Christianity is about ticking boxes, that Christianity is about following a set of rules. that You have to follow just reams upon reams of rules in order to qualify for salvation. But the fact is that none of us can ever qualify for salvation. There is nothing in any of us here. There's nothing in anyone on this earth that is worthy of being saved. Because the fact is that we are by very nature sinners. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul tells us later on in Romans that the wages of sin is death. That because all have sinned, there is a punishment for that. God is a righteous God. He is so righteous and just that he cannot just leave sin unpunished. And that's where the gravity of Jesus' sacrifice comes in. You see, Jesus was our substitute he took our place for all our sin because he was perfect because he was blameless he died the death that we should deserve that we that we do deserve and it's because of that that we have access to salvation and this is where the danger with legalism comes in you see these pharisees in the first century they were following so strictly to their man-made religion to their rules they thought that they could earn themselves salvation and we still see this around today um, as Josh briefly mentioned, but it's just essential to remember that works do not earn our salvation. Only the blood of Jesus on the cross, his death and resurrection can qualify us for salvation. But there's nothing that we can do to earn. That. We just have to freely accept it, to freely accept the gift of God's grace, as Paul puts it. And then it's out of having received that gift, having received that gift of salvation. It's out of that that our works come. It's out of that that from our immense love, our immense gratitude for God, that's where the works comes from. They're not in isolation. It's not what we do that qualifies us for salvation, but it's what that Jesus has already done. It's what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross. That's what gives us that opportunity to access eternal life. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn that. We just have to accept it freely.